It's another cool Friday morning on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. Hope everybody is heading into a beautiful weekend. We've got to get through some news before we get there. Let's begin. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin, Layla Tassi, and Laura Johnston. And Laura's up first. We've talked a good bit about State Senator Jerry Serino's Orwellian bill that will clamp down on free speech in colleges. I mean, it's right out of Vladimir Putin's head. The Senate has passed it, but the House has not. What is the latest tactic by the Senate to force this terrible proposal into law? Well, they added it to the budget. So that was the Senate's finance, si, sorry, Senate Finance Committee that added it to the budget on Wednesday, and that bill passed the Senate um, last month. That was the original passing, but they just put it in the budget just to make sure, I guess. And uh, now the House will have to take a look at it because now the, the House and the Senate are going to have to reconcile budgets. And that Senate bill, which was Senate Bill 83, has not moved in the House. But these tentacles are far reaching. We're talking about outlawing the ability of college faculty and staff to strike, banning mandated diversity training, requiring annual faculty performance evaluations based on student um, reviews and post-tenure reviews. And students get to say whether they believe that professors showed bias in their teaching. It's going to make all college kids take a basic government class where they have to read the Declaration of Independence and I think the Constitution. They have to put all the syllabi online. This is going to cost colleges hundreds of thousands of dollars to comply. And that's just the immediate financial uh, repercussions. I can't even think about everything that would come with it, all the people that would not want to come to Ohio, not believe in Ohio education anymore. And let's point out that this big brother takeover of higher education has nothing to do with the state finances, yet Republicans put it in the budget. Also, put an unrelated bill, sort of, well, it was it was unrelated. I think it was Senate Bill 113, inserted millions of dollars in funding to create, quote, independent academic units at Ohio State and the University of Toledo with their own bylaws, hiring, tenure authority, and report basically directly to the president. I uh, was on a, in a conversation yesterday with colleagues in the Ohio News Association, and a whole different wrinkle came up in that conversation about this, which is, will employers want to hire college students from Ohio knowing that they're not being exposed to any kind of conversations. There, there was a professor on the call and he, he said, you know, I teach journalism, but based on what this law is, there are concepts I probably can no longer discuss. So, so if you know that, that Ohio students are no longer being exposed to thoughtful discussion, do you want them? Or are you going to go get smart people that have had the the exercise of their brain and, and who are exposed to all these thoughts? It's not just what the law says. It's right. how the faculty reacts. No one wants to get charged with a crime for violating Jerry Serino's nutball law. So right. do they all self-censor, meaning that the education in Ohio colleges just becomes a joke? Well, and, and that's a really good point, not just hiring, though. But what about anyone who wants to go to law school, med school, uh, get your business um, MBA, go to any kind of graduate school, liberal arts, where they, they want to see your thinking? I mean, that's the entire part of going to get your master's degree or a PhD is an expansion of thought. So if you're coming from a place where it's very rigid and this is what you're allowed to be taught and it feels very Orwellian is a really good word then are are you going to get accepted to 
good liberal arts schools or higher education. Well, what's Orwellian is he says it's about free speech when it's about the opposite. It's just a right. And then out. did you see the email that Serino yeah, said yesterday? Yeah. It was like self-congratulatory. But we hadn't even talked about these um, centers at Ohio State and University of Toledo, which we're talking something like, you know, up to $10 million probably total, where they want to create these independent centers and Serino, huge proponent of these too, saying that it's there's one line of thought in our universities today, and this is supposed to assist universities in moving forward with more intellectual diversity. There's your double speak, and this would, I mean, I, it just doesn't make sense well, where you're going to put a center in a university just to teach conservative thought. Yeah, it, it, the other thing is, look, let's face it, there's there's fewer students available, so we all know there's going to be a shakeout. Yeah. There's going to be a reduction of academic institutions. So if I'm an academic institution in another state and I'm competing for students. I'm going to use this. I say, you don't want to go to an Ohio school because they won't let you have a discussion. They have clamped so far down that it's like living in Russia. Come here because we welcome freedom of expression and thought. And, you know, this is just state schools we're talking about. The private schools don't have to comply. So it's going to hurt the public colleges. Maybe you do want to go to school in Ohio or you want to stay in Ohio. You're going to look at Denison and Kenyon and Case. You're not going to want to go to Ohio State. Um, and sorry, that bill that I was just talking about is 117, not 113. If this passes, I have no doubt that they'll then expand it to say any private school that gets any state money has to follow right. these rules. This is a, a terrible direction that the state is headed in and good for the house for not moving it so far hopefully in reconciliation the house is going to say hey matt huffman no way this isn't russia you're listening to today in ohio the full senate did vote out its version of the budget and it is very different from the house version and from mike dewine's original proposal what will they have to reconcile lisa or at least what are some of the highlights because it's probably too much to talk about Yes, as a matter of fact, the article that's in the Plain Dealer in Cleveland.com lists over a dozen things that need to be reconciled between the House and Senate versions. The Senate passed an $85.8 billion budget yesterday on a 24 to 7 party line vote. Republican senators praised it, saying it will stimulate the Ohio economy, improve education, and return money to taxpayers. Democrats say it doesn't do enough to help poor people and its extreme changes to education policy. So um, some of the highlights, uh, we kind of touched on one, the liberal bias thing in the academic institution centers. The big one is expanding school vouchers. We've been talking about this a lot in recent weeks. Both versions call for expanding eligibility to families that make $135,000 a year, family of four. The Senate would extend it to all K-12 students, regardless of income. And that, that would increase spending, though, by $372 million over two years and $1 billion by 2025. Also, um, Cleveland Scholarship Program charter and private schools will no longer have to waive tuition beyond what the voucher pays. Um, the Cup Patterson Fair School funding bill, the next phase is funded for the next two years. The Senate version is $1.3 billion, but that's $541 million less than the House version of the, of the bill. So teacher pay, the Senate budget has no increase in minimum teacher salaries. The House is calling for $10,000 more a year for bachelor's degrees. That would be up to $40,000. And those with master's degrees, 
and 11 years of experience, uh, their minimum salary would go up more than $16,000 to $64,900. Tax cuts. Both plans cut state income taxes, but the Senate is seeking $1.65 billion in cuts, especially to the wealthy. It eliminates two tax brackets as well. The House is only calling for $930 million in cuts, mostly for low and middle income families. Um, uh, the Senate would also basically eliminate the commercial activity tax. So currently the CAT is assessed on gross receipts over $150,000, that would increase to $6 million. So that would mean 90% of Ohio businesses would no longer have to pay the, the CAT. I'll stop there. There's a lot more to talk about. but Well, what, what I'm going to be interested to see, the Senate has gone too far. And I you suspect that they did that as a negotiating tactic. Some of the things they're doing don't work. And I'll be interested to see if Mike DeWine, who has shown no willingness to oppose anything the legislature does since he was reelected, vetoes any of this. He has a line item veto on the budget. He could actually veto if the if the House put in Jerry Serino's lunatic bill, he could veto that. And I'm not sure in the House they could override that veto because of the fracturing of the Republican Party and the way Jason Stevens took it over. So the the Senate needs to be somewhat careful in the reconciliation of these things because Mike DeWine does have the power to say no. He can't add stuff back in. That's the, the, the sad thing is, is if they don't reconcile this and put some of this money back into daycare and the things where we need it, he can't just unilaterally put that in with his veto pen, but he can strike crazy stuff out. But will he though? I, I mean, I think that's the question now. I, I, you know, I think that, as you said, he's just willing to go along. And I don't know that he's really exercised his veto power recently. No, I, I mean, if if it goes the way it's gone since he got reelected, he'll just rubber stamp everything. I mean, the guy is almost non-existent in the governor's office since he was reelected. It's very disappointing. Uh, it would have been nice to hear him say something about Jerry Serino's bill. He says he stands for education. This is going to seriously harm education. And he cares about kids. So with the Senate version of this out, why doesn't he speak up a little bit so that the House knows that he is in favor of their version to give the House a little more power in this reconciliation? He's remained silent and we'll have to see where it goes. What are some of the other things? Um, let's see. We talked about liberal bias. Um, they're going to overhaul the State Board of Education. The Senate has stripped uh, most of the powers away from the State Board of Education. There's been no vote on this in the House yet. And then the social safety net. There are various cuts to food, housing, child care, and health care programs, which uh, you know affect the poorest in Ohio. Uh, let's see. I think those are the big ones. But I do want to point out this little detail. Um, revenues are expected to pass projections by $840 million or more. So it's not like we're, you know, poor here. There's a lot of money here. So you look at that money and we're not even talking about the unspent COVID relief money. So we've got revenues above projections, but yet we're cutting programs. Well, and with the vouchers, this is the Republican plan to pretty much destroy public schools. They're taking all that money and pumping it into vouchers. And 10 years from now, we'll be talking about the condition of public schools. It's not going to be pretty. You're listening to Today in Ohio. As part of its effort to hire more officers, much needed in a recent spate of violence, 
Cleveland is looking to women. So, Layla, what percentage of the department does Cleveland want to be female? Well, so the the 30 by 30 initiative, which is this national push to bring more women into law enforcement and police administration, they're seeking to have women make up 30% of sworn officers by 2030. And there are departments across the state that have signed on to that goal. Columbus, Cincinnati, Toledo, they've all done it. The Ohio State Highway Patrol and the RTA police force here in, uh, in our area. And 30 by 30 says that only 12% of sworn officers and 3% of top leaders in police are women. Cleveland has 216 female officers, and that makes up 17% of, of the police force, which frankly is higher than I expected to, to for it to be. But that's below other police forces. For instance, Madison, Wisconsin has uh, 28% women very close to that 30% goal. It's unclear if Cleveland has signed on to this particular initiative or not, but having more women on the force would obviously be good for Cleveland. The 30 by 30 initiative says female officers use less force in arrests. Generally, they're more honest and compassionate and, and, and are less often the target of complaints. Dorothy Annie Todd, the deputy chief of staff for, for Cleveland, told for the Cleveland police told Olivia Mitchell that in her experience, victims are often more likely to open up to a woman officer than a man. Olivia interviewed a lot of women in, in local police departments and they shared with her their experiences of discrimination through the years and how difficult they have found it to climb the ranks. She did a great job with the story. It's, it's worth a read on cleveland.com. We have a couple of recent examples where women officers were trying to do the right thing at a scene and then got overruled in the wrong way by male officers. I, I think it would be terrific to to get this done because I do think it would bring some more humanity to the police departments. Also, look, you're not getting any men. You know, they can't get candidates. So turn to women and see if you could do some recruiting there. This would be a wonderful step forward. I agree. It's a terrific story. People should check it out and, and a very laudable goal, uh, to, to make the department whole and, and more humane. Yeah. You know what reading though, about the experiences that, that some of the women in her story have had, how discriminatory, uh, some of the police ranks have been toward them. I, they really need to to make a serious cultural change in police departments if they want to get anywhere close to this goal. Well, one of the ways yeah. you change that culture is to just increase the numbers. I mean, you get more women in, it's going to be harder and harder to. But you know, if you hear about women getting, getting treated like that, the... who's going to sign up for that? Laura and the union, right, would have to. You think that they'd want to change the culture. I don't see that happening yet. That feels more like the old boys club, even if the administration is trying to make changes. You're listening to Today in Ohio. J.D. Vance and Sherrod Brown, two senators from Ohio, were as vocal as possible in demanding that railroad companies institute safety measures and put what they were wanting into the bill they co-sponsored. But since they made all the noise, they've weakened the bill. Laura, is that reason for outrage or do these changes make sense? I think we can be reasonable here. So they originally wanted to upgrade all rail cars by 2025 as part of the Railway Safety Act of 2023. That was the original language. Obviously, this all happened after the East Palestine derailment. But that apparently is really tough to do. Tank car manufacturers told Congress they wouldn't be able to meet that deadline because their orders for the next two years are already finalized. So they compromised on this new 2027 date. The 
the industry had pushed for 2029. And so Sherrod Brown, Democrat, he likened it to the auto industry saying, you know, when they get to these fuel economy standards and they're trying to compromise, Congress wants it faster than the industry says it's possible. And eventually they get to an agreement. And he says that the rail industry is one of the most powerful kind of top three in the country. And for there to be movement here, he's taking this as a win. Yeah, I think being reasonable makes sense. It, it, it does feel like the lobbyists are always fighting unreasonably, but because this was a bipartisan agreement, both of them came to it. I don't think it's it's probably the wrong way to go. It sounds bad on the front end. They've weakened what they proposed, but they do have a pretty good explanation. But they're not weakening what they're going to require, which is nice. It's not like they're like, okay, well, we'll go lax on these safety standards. They're pushing back the deadline, but they're still holding to the what they say they want, you know, to make this safer for the tank cars. And so this is the the Senate version. There obviously there's a House version. Bill Johnson is working on that. Um, so I'm guessing that the same thing is going to happen there. Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The Ohio legislators' work to heavily regulate transgender issues has wound up in a mega bill that will soon head to the House floor. Lisa, what would this bill do? The House Public Health Policy Committee merged two transgender bills into one. So House Bill 6, which bans transgender athletes in female sports, also known as the Save Women's Sports Act, and House Bill 68, which bans minors from undergoing gender reassignment procedures, even with parental consent, also known as the SAFE Act or Save Adolescents from Air Experimentation. So now this is all under the what's called the new House Bill 68. House Speaker Jason Stevens says it will go to the House floor for a vote next week. He says that there are similar issues and that these bills have been around a few years and now it's time for the House to vote on them. So Ohio, if they sign this, will join 22 states that have sports bans and 19 states that have medical treatment bans. Uh, the public policy director for Equality Ohio, Catherine Poe, says it's one big, terrible mega bill and she's urging action from supporters in a TikTok video that she posted. The Ohio Children's Hospital Association also opposes House Bill 68. It was also amended. It removes a provision that banned counselors providing mental health services to affirm a child's perception of their gender, which I had to read that two or three times to figure out what that meant. But anyway, so they're just mashing it all together into one big anti-transgender bill. Well, all of this has been controversial. And by putting it into one bill, it's a single vote. Mm -hmm. So it's almost an effort. They're going to take flack. They're going to get support from people that believe in this stuff. But they only have to do it once by putting it all together. Uh, I guess you could argue it's a single subject bill, transgender, but it is a multi-warhead bill with all sorts of elements to it. Um, A little bit cowardly to to avoid having discussions individually, but you could see they just don't feel like dealing with the protesters. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Cuyahoga County has met its goal of finding unpolluted land for a new county jail in Garfield Heights. Layla, is it paying a fair price and who owns it now? Mm, Whether they'd be paying a fair price is a little undetermined. Ronane submitted legislation to county council this week to purchase 
three parcels that total 72.1 acres at Granger Road and Transportation Boulevard in, in Garfield Heights for $38.7 million. This, the second choice site for the jail is on Kirby Avenue in Cleveland. That site is expected to to, to have to sell at around, I don't know, eight and a half to $15 million, depending on how many of those seven parcels that comprise that site the county would actually buy for the jail. But it's likely to require a lot of remediation to make it environmentally friendly for a jail. There are potentially a lot of contaminants on that site. Cleaning it up would cost between 14 and a half and 23.6 million. Then you factor in cost of demo and construction. So you're looking at about 870 million total for that Kirby Avenue site. The Garfield Heights property doesn't require any remediation and only $850,000 for demolition and construction readiness. So add that into the purchase price and the jail build, and you're looking at $790 million. The, the new purchase price for Garfield Heights, it's significantly more than what the county was quoted last year when it was named the county's third choice for a jail location. Back then, the county said that the owners, which are Craig Realty Group and, and DeGeronimo Companies, were seeking $22 million, though that price only included 40.4 acres. If you break it down per acre, it's $550,000. And if you apply that to the full 72 acres that the county's seeking, that would be more than what they're trying to seek, uh, what they're what they're trying to seek for today, 39.6. Um, or it would have been 39.6, which would have been more than what they're currently asking. But there's a water detention area that's that you can't develop. So it's really hard to tell if this is a good deal or not at this point. And then there's one more wrinkle in the story. And it's the fact that the DeGeronimos, either through businesses or as individuals, or in some cases through their employees, had contributed quite a bit of money to Chris Ronane's campaign, at least $37,000. Most of those donations came during a fundraising event back in May of 2022 that raised a total of 40 grand for Ronane's campaign. Of course, you know, county spokeswoman denied that those contributions had any bearing whatsoever on the site selection process or the asking price. But it's important to, to for the public to know when those connections exist. Yeah, it is. I uh, I, I keep falling back on that. This is a perfect site for the jail. That it transportation wise, and that it's clean, and that the room they're going to have to put other offices out there, like the sheriff, it just makes huge sense. And I know that families like the Geronimos have been contributing to campaigns for for quite some time. You hope, you hope that's not why they're they're looking at that site. But the argument is very strong for why to build a jail there. Um, we, we did wonder yesterday why they're going for a 40 year increase in the sales tax and whether they were trying to generate extra money for things like sports stadiums. And it has been pointed out to us that whatever their motive is, County council has been adamant that whatever money is raised that's extra for the jail must go into mm -hmm their courthouse project, whatever that is, renovation, replacement. So it, the, the Haslam's wouldn't uh, right now would not be able to get their hands on it for a stadium. Right. You're listening to today in Ohio. All right, Laura, how much has Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan made from his memoir? 
more than a dollar. <laughs> we don't have an exact number thanks to, you don't have to disclose it in the um, official financial disclosure reports from 2022. So it's somewhere between 100000 and $1 million. That's a really big gamut. But that's what the report says. This is the book, Do You Do What You Said You Would Do, Fighting for Freedom in the Swamp, that went on sale in November 2021. I think Sabrina Eaton bought it and read it for all of us so we didn't have to. So there's one sale. But uh, he also made some money from a past book from 1994, a sports nutrition book, uh, Victory at the Training Table, A Guide to Sports Nutrition. You, I, what, you don't like to hear about this kind of thing and why the disclosure is important. W- what if I wanted to put money in his pocket? I could buy dozens and dozens of these books to distribute, and he profits from that. And that well, they, that and that's what's happening for. I mean, I don't know about like businesses, but a bunch of GOP. People are doing that. Washington State candidate Leslie French is offering free copies of the book to donors that give 50 bucks. People who get $100 can get an autographed copy. The National Republican Congressional Committee is offering signed copies to donors who give $35 or more. So yeah, spend your $35, the National Republican Congressional Committee. I mean, that's only usually like, what, 10 10 or 15 bucks more than a hardback book costs. And then you'll get this signed copy of Jordan's book and you'll be donating to the committee in the meantime. It's a, it's a dangerous thing. That's why it should be fully disclosed. If somebody bought cartons and cartons of these books, not really wanting the books, but to get cash to him, it's a, it's a legal way to give him money. And that that's not good for the way America is governed. I mean, you could just create a dark money 501 C4, right? And then we'll never but know. That's not, <laughs> but that doesn't go into his pocket. This is money True. that goes good into point. his pocket. And that's where you get into danger. You're listening you can store to Today all those books at Mar-a-Lago. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> Three Republicans seeking to oppose Sherrod Brown in next year's Senate race in Ohio have had very different reactions to the indictment of Donald Trump in federal court over the secrets, the secret records he took with him when he left office. Lisa, how are they different? Well, we all know where Bernie Moreno lands. He's been angling for the Trump endorsement in this race. The Cleveland businessman was actually in attendance at Trump's Bedminster, New Jersey resort Tuesday when Trump spoke after his arraignment there. Uh, Moreno was there for a previously planned candlelight dinner fundraiser. Um, And his quote, he said, it isn't just blatant election interference from Biden's DOJ. It's a miscarriage of justice. Ohio Senator Matt Dolan was much more circumspect. He says, I'm working hard on the Ohio budget in Columbus. And of course, he's trying to appeal to moderate and traditional Republicans. He had a tweet on Tuesday that reinforced his theme that he's focused on Ohio issues, working hard on a budget that benefits all Ohioans. Frank LaRose, not an official candidate yet, but we're expecting him to announce any time. But he had no mention about Trump's arrest and arraignment on social media. His spokesman, Rob Nichols, issued a statement that said, uh, I had to laugh because he qualified it to say, well, you know, Secretary LaRose is a former Green Beret with a security clearance who knows all about national security. But then the statement went on to say that he, he was disappointed that leaders of both parties have been accused of mishandling classified information. And it's a troubling double standard on how feds pursue these matters. It, it is very, very different approach. And w- one thing we know is Matt Dolan is no Trumper. I think he's an old style kind of politician that looks at the shenanigans and 
things that Trump's done, you know, with scorn. So I'm not surprised that he's stayed away from it. I had to laugh, though. The Ohio Democratic Party issued a statement, and their response was, Frank LaRose's primary problems spiral out of control. <laughs> well, yeah, he's too busy trying to destroy democracy in Ohio with issue one. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Layla, Cuyahoga County Executive Chris Renane announced a bunch of new hires Thursday. Who are they and what will they be doing? And are the people they're replacing losing their jobs or are we just adding more people to the payroll? Oh, adding more people to the payroll. <laughs> <laughs> let's just get to let's just get that out there now. He nominated uh, Debbie Berry as the county's first deputy chief of integrated development and Kelly Woodard as his new director of communications. Berry would be responsible for the county's vision for long-term integrated development housing, mobility, transportation, and public work strategies to, you know, quote, invigorate the region. That's quite a big job. She currently serves as Greater Cleveland Partnership's Senior Vice President of Major Projects and Real Estate Development. There she has been responsible for driving major initiatives, which include the lakefront, riverfront, and downtown redevelopment. She's an engineer with a, a bunch of experience in the public sector, including a lot of experience working with with Ronane. They go back to his time with the city of Cleveland and his time with University Circle, Inc. And then Kelly Woodard is going to replace Mary Louise Madigan as the new face of the county. She's currently the director of marketing at Cleveland Public Library. She She previously held leadership roles in broadcast news for cities, including Dallas, New York City, Hartford, Connecticut, Rich, Richmond, Virginia, and Cleveland. Okay, well, he he does need some help with his media relations, so maybe that's a good thing because <laughs> yes, he has not been good at the messaging at all. Absolutely, and and to answer that question that you have, Mary Louise Madigan is staying on the payroll. They're going to find something else for her to do. So it seems like the payroll is growing uh, on account of appointments. Okay, you're listening to Today in Ohio. I want to clear up something we discussed yesterday. We were wondering who wrote the advertisement for pro and con against issue one that will be in many newspapers, courtesy of the taxpayers. Andrew Tobias listens to this podcast, sent me a note saying, hey, I wrote about this and I remembered the story, but I didn't remember it yesterday. And actually, there's a rigor to it. The Republicans wrote why it's a good thing. Democrats wrote very pointedly and very accurately why it's a bad thing. So Frank LaRose had nothing to do with this. Wanted to clear that up. Thank you, Andrew Tobias. And thank you, Andrew, for listening. That's it. Happy Father's Day weekend. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Laura. And, thanks, Layla. Thanks to everybody who listens. And Monday's Juneteenth, so we won't have a podcast. Oh, that's right. Correct? Right. That's right. We will not be here. Well, Laura wants to make sure that now. Just so to that make I'm sure. Not looking for a Monday morning. Okay. <laughs> or that nobody else is looking for this podcast either. Okay. Thanks very much. We'll be back Tuesday. <laughs>